Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. Good morning. Today is the third week in our series studying the aspects of the story of Daniel, found in the book of his name in the Old Testament. Daniel was a young Israelite taken captive and carried off along with his friends to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar around 600 BC. In the first week, we heard from Sim about how Daniel was prepared to stand out for his faith when he refused to eat the king's food that he had been offered because he knew it had been sacrificed to idols. Last week, we heard from Natasha about how Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, were prepared to stand firm in their faith and refused to bow down and worship the king's golden image, even when they were thrown into a blazing furnace for it. This week, we're looking further at being prepared to stand up for what we know is right, even when it is hard to do so and creates risks to ourselves. Dan, Daniel, actually stood up before a succession of different Babylonian rulers and spoke God's truth to them, despite the fact that he knew that they would not necessarily like what he was going to say to them. More than once, he did this by revealing the interpretation of their dreams and their visions. He gained a reputation for being able to do this. Every time, however, Daniel made it clear that it was not his ability, but that of God who revealed the meanings to him. So we're looking today at the story found in Daniel chapter 4. It's towards the end of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he had had another dream that he didn't understand. He wanted Daniel to interpret it for him. It is the second dream that we are told Daniel interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar. This first one is recorded in Daniel chapter 2. And in that case, the king did not even reveal what the contents of the dream were. All Of all the king's advisers, only Daniel was not able only to describe what the dream was, but also their meaning. That first dream, if you've ever read the story, was of an enormous statue made from gold with a gold head and a silver torso and bronze and iron legs. And in the interpretation that God gave to Daniel, these represented the current and future kingdoms. Since King Nebuchadnezzar was described as the gold and greatest head of this statue, as far as he was concerned, it was actually quite complimentary to him. But this second dream made the king really afraid. Perhaps he hoped for a similar positive interpretation, but as you will see, that was not to be the case. The second dream is of a tall tree whose branches reach to the sky and whose fruit feeds the whole world. But then a messenger from heaven commands the tree to be cut down until only a stump is left, surrounded by grass, drenched with dew and visited by wild animals. When Daniel hears the details of this dream and grasps its meaning, how different it was from the first, he is alarmed and very worried. So I'm going to read a few extracts, extracts from Daniel chapter 4, starting from verse, four, uh, chapter four, verse 19. Upon hearing this, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. Then the king said to him, Belteshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. Belteshazzar replied, I wish the events foreshadowing this dream would happen to your enemies, my lord, and not to you. This is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my lord, the king. You will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way 
until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. And Daniel ends with this, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. <clears throat> Daniel was prepared to stand up, to call a spade a spade and tell the mighty King Nebuchadnezzar that he was sinning, that he needed to change his behaviour. The king had seen God in action before and had heard Daniel's interpretation of the first dream. He had seen God saving Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from the fiery furnace, but he still had not changed his ways or his behaviour and come to worship the true God. This action took a lot of bravery on behalf of Daniel. He had never interpreted a dream to the king before with such a hard-hitting message. You could see from his own words that he was quite afraid to give it, perhaps even more so as the king encouraged him not to hold back. He could have had Daniel executed at a moment's notice. It was certainly the sort of thing he had done before. The reason Daniel was able to stand up and give this message was because he knew it came from God, the God who he trusted absolutely. He put obedience to God before his own life, even hoping to change the king's mind and his behaviour so that what was forecast in the dream might be averted. There are many other examples in the Bible of people speaking up before powerful kings and rulers, often with a risky message that they might well get into serious trouble for. There was a real danger of shooting the messenger. We know about the story of Moses before the Pharaoh of Egypt asking him to let the Israelites go. We know about the story of Nathan the prophet who went before King David challenging him over his adultery with Bathsheba. We know about the story of Esther, who went before King Xerxes, daring to request his help for her uncle Mordecai and the Jews. And the subject of Sim's daily thought during the recent week of prayer, we know of Nehemiah, who went before King Artaxerxes, asking for permission and resources to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. In the New Testament, we know the story of John the Baptist, who came before Herod Antipas, this is the same Herod that later wanted Jesus to perform a miracle for him. John the Baptist accused Herod of illegally marrying his brother's wife, Herodias, who was also his niece. Because he did this, John actually lost his own life. When to please her mother, Salome, the daughter of Herodias, asked for his head on a platter. Lastly, of course, there is Jesus himself who appeared before Pilate who thought he had power over Jesus. And we find an interesting exchange between them in John chapter 19. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realise I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. That is proof, if ever we needed it, that all those in earthly authority, whether they are prime ministers or presidents or kings, still receive any position and power they may have from God Almighty. If we are ever in these situations, Jesus made this amazing promise to us in Luke chapter 12, verse 11 and 12. When you were brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, 
Do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. When in these circumstances, God himself will actually give us the words to say. Elspeth, you may, if you're watching Daily Freedom a week or so ago, she talked about arrow prayers, those short prayers we send up to God when in difficult situations, asking him to give us wisdom or the right words to say. This passage actually promises us that God will answer those prayers when we need it. I want to talk now about a very sensitive and difficult topic, that of standing up and speaking out to our fellow believers, confronting them when we see them engaging in sinful and harmful behaviours. The Bible is very clear that we are answerable to each other. It is not only our duty to encourage each other in good behaviours and activities, it is also our duty to challenge each other when we engage in wrong and helpful, unhelpful things. It says in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. The promise for us is, the problem, sorry, the problem for us is we don't want to upset people. We are afraid of getting a negative reaction, of losing our friends. We are also very aware that the Bible says we are not supposed to judge each other. So let's read where it says that. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, Jesus said this, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, we can get very confused by this. Jesus is talking about being judgmental of the person themselves. We have no right to judge a person. That is God's role. We especially have no right about judging whether they are saved or not. We can look at their behaviour, and but we, we cannot make that decision. That is God's responsibility and his job. It is not ours. But we do need to judge actions and words in many circumstances particularly sinful and harmful ones. Parents have to do that with their children and teachers, of course. Managers have to do it with employees. Doctors have to do it with patients. Church leaders may have to do it with church members. And we may also have to do it with our fellow believers. I'm going to come back to that important passage later and read a bit more because it's not the whole story. The key scripture that really speaks into this situation and we need to understand regarding this topic is found in Matthew 18, where Jesus says this, starting at verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is the correct biblical principle for confronting a fellow believer who has fallen into sin. It is to lovingly and sensitively confront them in this private and disciplined manner, giving them every opportunity to repent and changing before escalating things. It must be done lovingly and not judgmentally challenging the sin and not the person. 
Remember what we read earlier in Galatians chapter 6, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. You must remember that thing that when you point at someone, there are always four fingers pointing back at you or three fingers, sorry. We must also remember the words in Proverbs 27, 6 that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It is not right to ignore what they're doing, thinking it is none of my business. It's not my problem. Even perhaps I'm, in no, I'm not much better than them in other areas. It is also not right to gossip and complain about them behind their back. Neither is, right, is it right to publicly shame and criticise them on social media or Facebook or elsewhere. I have had some first-hand experience of God calling me to do something like this. It was very tough. It was one of the, literally one of the hardest and most challenging things I have ever had to do. We must therefore be very sure of our facts and certain of what God is asking us to do before going ahead. And it's also very important to note that it's only to be done when you are specifically aware of serious sin in another believer's life. It is not just if you think they're making some poor decisions or certainly not if you just feel their theology is a bit questionable. You may well think, even quite correctly, that a fellow Christian seems to be behaving unwisely. Sometimes you may even feel that God wants you to speak to them about it, but very often God does not actually want you to protect them from the consequences of their unwise decisions or behaviour. He wants them to learn the lessons from it themselves. God showed me this so clearly many years ago when Joel had lost his third raincoat and left it at school. Joel is our oldest son. I can't remember how old he was, probably about 14. And it was pouring with rain and he couldn't find his coat. And he left it at school and he said, and I was about to lend him my own coat. And God clearly said to me, don't do it because he won't learn. He'll never learn if you just keep covering up your mistakes. So he went to school and he got very wet. And I don't think he forgot a coat again or lost the coat again. When God does reveal these things to you, I think most often it is not so that you should speak to them rather than that you would pray for them to stand in the gap, even without them knowing, to pray that they will learn and grow in God from their experiences and even their mistakes. It's also really important to understand that we are not responsible for the outcomes when we do speak to someone because there is sin in their life. We are not responsible whether they respond in the right way or not to what we say. That is their responsibility and ultimately it is God's business. We are only required to be obedient, to stand up for what is right and what God has called us to do. King Nebuchadnezzar in the, in the story of Daniel did not actually change after Daniel spoke to him and the things in the dream did happen to him. But as was also forecast, prophesied in the dream, he was finally restored, perhaps even to faith in God through the experience he went through. Lastly, I want to talk about how not to stand up against, against each other. I want to talk about a disturbing and ungodly trend that I've seen these days of Christians sitting in judgment on one another, particularly on the internet. There are so many websites dedicated to showing what is wrong with one or other particular theological viewpoint with styles of doing church, with different ways of working out our Christian faith. It's particularly true in the USA, but we also, of course, have ready access to it here and we could so easily fall into its trap. I am not actually talking about the current big arguments between Christians over support for Donald Trump, 
although that is bad enough. I'm talking about those who think or claim it, their, it is their ministry to expose the deceptions and errors in the activities and lives of their fellow believers, whether it be criticising people who prefer a contemplative style of Christianity, whether it's condemning those who prefer a more charismatic one, or finding fault with those who like to place a greater emphasis on our social justice priorities. In many cases, it would seem that they are far more bothered about the supposedly wrong way of doing things that God than God actually is himself. They may believe and claim they're exposing the wolves among the sheep in our churches. In reality, I believe they are criticising and undermining genuine born-again believers, people who are simply trying to bring the truth of Christ to a hurting world in a way that God has, they feel that God has led them to. Often some of these criticisms are justified by claiming the people they are uh, critics of are in some way following unscriptural practices or somehow promoting unbiblical ideas. They are preaching another gospel from the true one, even that they are not genuine believers. Now, I am certainly not condoning those who do wrongly preach a gospel of prosperity. Neither do I support some of the excesses of the extreme charismatic moment, movement. But nobody has a perfect understanding of the Bible. There is heresy in all of us. As an elder of a former church we used to go to, used to say several there's we've all, none of us have got a perfect theology. Why do these critical people think they have exclusive knowledge of the truth? That their particular take on things is the only one there is. That their preferred style of church or way of working out their faith is the only one that counts. Why do any of us like to do this sort of thing? I honestly think it makes us feel better if we can point out the mistakes of others. It means we can forget more about our own. But how damaging it is to the body of Christ when we do. It is completely ignoring the words of Jesus in John 13, where he says this at verse 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There is a particular example some of you may have come across in recent times. There are websites and preachers and people in YouTube videos saying we should be not be singing the worship songs from Hillsong or Bethel. They claim this is due to various failings in the errors in the uh, failings and errors in the ministry of these organisations, whether it be a prosperity emphasis from Hailsong or some strange ideas from one or two of the senior figures in Bethel. When I've listened to these, and I have, uh, you know, one of them, I, I spent an hour watching someone talking it, what they sadly never seem to acknowledge is the amazing words of many of those songs that we sing. They are so often full of biblical truth and coming from people with a genuine and deep love for Jesus, a tremendous awareness of God's love for them and for the church. The Bible does say in 1 Thessalonians 5, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. So we must not just accept and swallow completely every new thing we hear about. We must test it against the truths we know. If we are not sure, we should ask others that we trust. But we also must not know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because someone has said or done something that we think is slightly questionable, we should not write off everything else they say and do as believers. As I said, nobody has perfect theology, least of all me or you. <laughs> 
God gave me a very disturbing picture many years ago, and I've shared this in church before. It was before Sim and Lottie joined us, but this sort of thing was actually going on in our church, in our own church. I saw a picture of a beautiful bride in a white dress, but the dress was slashed and covered in cuts and stained with blood. What God showed me is that when we do this sort of thing, when we criticise our fellow Christians, we are actually self-harming ourselves. We are the bride of Christ and we are abusing ourselves. So don't do it. I want to come back to scripture in Matthew 7 and read on a bit further than before. We find a well-known illustration. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And when the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. When we criticise our fellow believers in this way, or actually when we encourage them by reading it and promoting it and, and passing it on, when we seek to bring them down, we can so easily miss the logs and planks in our own eyes. We are running a serious risk of becoming modern day Pharisees. These are the people that Jesus condemned in the strongest possible terms. And as Jesus accused the Pharisees of in Matthew 23, we are in danger of straining gnats and swallowing camels. I actually even need to be careful myself with this talk and I had to take some stuff out. I thought I'm just, I'm doing what I'm telling people not to do. So finally, I want to end with a really important scripture reminder about how rather than standing against each other, we should stand up for each other. And it's very relevant in these current difficult times. You'll find it in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now as that the day of his return is drawing near. Amen. And thank you for listening. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk Thank you for listening.